Jesus' name, amen. I recently read the book Frankenstein. Anybody ever read Frankenstein? Me and like three of us, all right, that's good. Uh, usually, you know, some things people don't know about Frankenstein is that like uh, Frankenstein's the doctor, not the monster. And so like everybody thinks that monster that we see is Frankenstein. That's just Frankenstein's creation, right? And uh, you read the book and, and, and for a while I was like, why is this book a big deal? I was trying to figure out uh, what, what's going on and, and why it's been so famous for so long. And it is, it is sort of the first science fiction book ever written. And so it's kind of interesting for that. But, but really it asks a philosophical question. At some point this monster that's been created gains intelligence and intelligence enough to essentially, go, to, to essentially turn back on the Dr. Frankenstein and basically said, say, you've made a big mistake in what you've done here. And, and he's critical of him. He's, he's speaking back to him. And, and in a lot of ways, the, the creation all of a sudden is critiquing in the story the creator. And so if you want to really understand what's going on, you realize that that's the, the dynamic and the philosophical kind of questions. And, uh, and, and so this creation has a particular perspective on whether the creator should have ever done what he do did. And that's kind of an interesting thing to think about, right? And, and in many ways, we live in an age where essentially this is almost what we do entirely when it relates to God. We spend most of our time in a skeptical age. Uh, we, we put God on the, the judgment seat and we busy ourselves critiquing what God has done. And we ask questions about, and from our limited vantage point, we ask questions about whether God is right and wrong, whether the way he's responded is appropriate, whether things are fair. And we sort of take this, uh, this, this similar approach of doing that. And in, in many ways, whenever we talk about the gospel and we think about spirituality, we almost always think about it from a man-centered perspective. We start with us and what we observe, and then we make conclusions about what that must mean about God. And when we do that, we get ourselves all wrapped up in confusion. In Romans 9 through 11, which we've been studying through, is one of the most challenging parts of the New Testament, because what it does is it begins to talk back to us as people who make things about ourselves and center on our own perspective and limited wisdom, and, and it forces us to, to look at salvation and the gospel and God's saving work from His perspective. Because when we center on ourselves, what happens is we ignore a lot of things about ourselves and we miss a lot of things about God. And essentially, this is what is going on in the passage as we are, are forced now to look at what has God actually done. And, and Paul is working, in a sense, to, uh, to clarify what God has actually done over and against the perception of the Roman church about how the gospel works and what their circumstances mean. Are you tracking with me? So... I made the case as best as I could a couple weeks ago that in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is addressing a concern in the church at Rome that may seem a bit odd to us, but would have made a lot of sense in the context of the early church in Rome in the first century. The concern he's addressing is that God has chosen the Jew Jewish people to have a special relationship with him. He's chosen the Jewish people to be a significant part of the vehicle through which he would deliver his promises of salvation. And that being the case, if Jesus was really the fulfillment of that plan, then it's a problem that so many Jewish people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. 
such that that church in Rome in the first century was made up mainly of a Gentile majority and a Jewish minority. And so basically he's just saying, he's just looking at that, and, and these Christians in the church are like, if God had promised to bring this blessing through the Jewish people, why is this Ro- church in Rome now have this explosion of Gentiles receiving God's promises, but so many Jewish people rejecting it? That's the heart of the issue that they're asking about. And Paul, particularly in this section, is speaking to the Jewish Christians in Rome and helping them to understand their circumstances, helping to understand why the gospel is advancing among the Gentiles and not among the Jews and what that means for them and what it doesn't mean for them. And so it's a little bit outside of our interests in a lot of ways. You know, if you're here today, you're like, okay, well, it's an interesting topic, but I mean, I've got things going on in my life, right? But I think if we look closely at it, what it does is it helps us understand some things that are important for us to understand about the grace of God. Now, Paul's response, just to summarize it, beginning in chapter 9, and it catches up to where we are, Paul's response has been to show that the problem isn't with God, but with a general Jewish hardness of heart towards God's promises. A hardness of heart towards God, and particularly towards Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope for salvation. Paul's also showing that through Christ, God is not confirming Jewish self-righteousness, but offering mercy to those who realize they've sinned and call on him for salvation. You see, Jews wanted to, Pastor Clint pointed this out last week, that there was a theology, a view of God that was common among the Jews at the day, at that time, is that if they become real strictly committed to the Torah, that ultimately then God would send his Messiah. That God was waiting to send his Messiah until they got better. Which was the opposite, actually, of what was happening, that they weren't going to get better until they trusted the Messiah. And so they had developed this theology and had it all backwards, and Paul's now correcting that. And so, in a sense, Paul's argument is, you've underestimated God's heart by questioning him, thinking he's narrow in his grace. You've underestimated God's heart for the Gentiles to be brought into his family, and you've overestimated your own righteousness. If you read the Old Testament, listen, during my my sabbatical early in the year, I read through the the whole of the Bible during those eight weeks, and the most shocking thing was what what we see even Paul describing here. God, uh, that if you read the Old Testament, honestly, you'll see God has always desired to bless the nations with the hope of reconciliation to him, and Israel has often shown a hardness to his purposes. Nevertheless, God has fulfilled what he's promised through the Messiah. And Jesus has come and he's brought salvation for Jew and Gentile. Verse 13, right before the passage we read, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what he wanted them to see. And so in Rome, many Gentiles are believing the message of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And many Jewish people who would seem to have been to the prime audience are rejecting it. And that's uncomfortable for the Jewish Christians in the church. How should these circumstances be interpreted? Has God thrown Israel aside? Have the Gentiles replaced them? These are the kind of questions they're asking. These are the sort of questions then Paul is answering in this particular text. But, but listen, that may seem far from us, but listen, as he answers these questions, 
we're getting a crash course in God's grace. You see, what's happening is if we pay attention to the way these questions are answered, we start to discover some things about God's grace that it's been easy for us to overlook. Some things about the way we think about our own salvation and the way God works generally. We can look at how Paul responds to this specific question and learn some general things about God's grace. And that's what we do in this passage. So here in these verses, we learn about the riches of God's grace displayed in the Great Commission and his patience with Israel. And so... Uh, I just, I just want to look at three ways that this passage helps show us the abundant grace of God. There are three particular ways if we look through what Paul does here that we can see that, that what Paul wants them to see is that God's grace is incredibly abundant. Next slide. Uh, and, and so the main focus really today that I want you to be able to walk away with as we walk through this text is that God's abundant grace is seen in two ways, both in the way that God has sent people to advance the gospel, his, his advancement of the gospel to the Gentiles, to all nations, and it's also seen in God's slowness to judge even those who reject him. So there's two ways we see the abundant grace of God in this passage, and we're going we're gonna to walk through kind of three sections that put this on display. We see the abundance of God's grace in this advance of the gospel to the Gentiles and to every nation. We also see the abundance of God's grace in his slowness to just cast the Jewish people aside, who are the example of rejection in this passage. So how do we see that? Well, we see it first in verses 14 through 17. We see God's grace is seen in the advance of the Great Commission. God's grace is seen in the advance of the Great Commission. There's actually, you know, this, this section in, at the end of the, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, verses 45 through 48. After Jesus is risen, he gathers his disciples... Uh, together, and he wants to make sure to be clear to them what his mission for them is. And they've had, un- they've had trouble, just like many of the Jewish people, understanding the scriptures rightly, and so, so he helps them understand them. And it says in verse 45, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And listen, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. You see, what we see in that passage is God's abundant heart is for the nations to hear the gospel, to be reconciled to him, and the Jewish people to be servants of that mission of it extending to the world. And in a sense, God has fulfilled that promise in preserving the Jewish people and bringing Jesus the Savior. Jesus has shed his blood on the cross. He's risen from the dead. Now he's looking at his disciples and he said, the mission that God has for you is to see this gospel reconcile people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is the mission that he has. So here in verses 14 through 17, Paul is helping the church of Rome understand why he, a Jewish Pharisee who has now trusted in this promise and been forgiven by God, is focused on this mission to those who have not heard. 
Why it is that he's going to those who have not heard when there's a lot of Jewish people saying, well, your fellow Jewish people, they've rejected. Why don't you work with them? Why don't you spend more time focused on them? And Paul is saying, we have a, we have a message. He sort of climaxed what he was saying in verse 13 when he says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now he says, so therefore, we need to get this gospel to people who haven't heard it. So it's a very simple logic train beginning in verse 14. He wants them to understand his mission. What is happening is that God is fulfilling a plan to offer hope and redemption to the world. Now, to really understand that, you have to remember that Paul is a zealous Jewish guy, okay? Who now spends a great deal of his time preaching among the Gentiles and considers them fellow brothers and sisters in Christ among the household of God. That's how he sees these Gentiles. He doesn't see them as something other. He sees them as belonging to the same household because of Jesus. But this isn't the way traditional Jewish people saw it. And the new Christians in the Roman church were having to learn from Paul why Paul is so committed to this Gentile mission. To really understand, so that's what we have to do to really understand it. But he's just made the case that the purpose of Jesus' coming was not to make a name for the Jewish people, but the exact opposite, that the Jewish people existed, that people might hear the name of Jesus, the one on whom they could call and genuinely experience salvation and reconciliation from God. All people everywhere are invited to call on this name for hope. So no matter what people have done, no matter where they've been, no matter if they've worshipped other gods, no matter if they've been ignorant, no matter how they've turned away from God in unrighteousness, that, that God has extended this hope through Jesus Christ for even those who have sinned against God to repent and be forgiven and reconciled to God. There's forgiveness in Christ. There's transformation in Christ. Paul is confident of that. There's reconciliation to God in Christ. There's an experience of genuine love in Christ. This is good news, and he says it's news that should be proclaimed. And so look what he says in verses 14 and 15. He takes that sentiment and he says, But how then will they call on him who they have not believed? Why am I concerned about this? How will they call? If calling on him in faith is the way in which they are reconciled and experience the power of faith, how will they call on the one whom they've not believed? That's why I'm concerned. And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Now, what is Paul's point in saying that? Well, obviously, he's first of all making just a really logical point, isn't he? He's saying if at the crux of the matter is this opportunity to call on Jesus, there's some basic work that has to be done for people to hear this message. That, that's part of what Paul is saying. He's justifying his focus, his mission uh, on that. What else is going on? Well, here's the thing that, that's going on. Paul is not celebrating through these words his mission itself as an act of his own will. What he's doing is saying, let's look at what God's heart has been then in raising me up and those who have followed with me to spread this gospel among the, the cities of the Mediterranean. 
You see, what's happened is all of a sudden, he, he ends on the idea that, that they were sent. If you reverse the order, you see that they're sent, and through being sent, people hear the preaching, and they're able to call on the name of Christ. And he rewinds all the way back and says, how are they to even go if they're not sent? But, that, but the reason he says that is because Paul has been sent. And so it begs the question, who sent Paul to declare this abundant grace to all people? Well, God himself. You see, his mission is an indication of the abundant grace of God to bring all peoples to himself, not just Jewish people to himself. And so that's how, that's how this passage is really intending to, to lay this out. What's going on is Paul... Paul sees himself as sent, particularly by God, and he sees that as an indication of how gracious God's heart is for the peoples of the world. It's not just Paul's will. You see, think about it. God plucked Paul out of a life of sin and commissioned him to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. The mission Paul joined has been spreading now. It's been spreading, particularly in this time. He, he's, it's bearing fruit. It's taking off among the Gentiles all over cities in the, in the Roman Empire. And it's, and it's happening because God has been gracious to send those who would proclaim the name of Jesus so people could hear. The Gentile explosion of faith, if seen rightly, is happening because God has a heart to send out His good news. People are hearing the word of Christ. Not because of mere human effort, but because of God's divine grace. A grace that is revealing that God's heart is rich with desire that the world would be saved. This is the first thing we're to see about the abundance of God's grace when we look at this pattern. Is that this is, this is a mission that has been initiated by God. I mean, it, it's not hard to argue that, that Paul is the most successful missionary in history. <laughs> we had the greatest initial impact. That it was even surprising that so many people responded <laughs> to that good news. But Paul is not so foolish to think that all of this is happening because he made a good decision. Because that's not Paul's story. <laughs> Paul's story is one of being chosen <laughs> For this purpose, by God himself, appointed to it, sent, and bringing a bunch of other people into it because of that. And so in that way, he's saying this whole thing just shows how abundantly God has a heart for the world. And I wonder, I wonder if we trust and believe in that heart, and if we, if we see it as any other way, we're missing the point. So, so the Jewish discomfort with Paul's mission and God's plan is a discomfort with the largeness of God's heart for the world and a desire for them to be the focus rather than Christ. So what he's, he's, he's rebuking the, the Jewish Christians in this church and he's saying, you know, you want to be the focus when God's got something bigger going on. You need, to, you need to realize you're here to serve that, that people would call on his name, not that your name would be made great. And, and so he's, he's rebuking them and, and turning this on them. And, and there's a sense in which what they're saying is because their own people do not seem all that open right now, they want to discount what God is doing to advance the good news among others. 
So Paul, in verses 16 and 17 then, is asking these Christians not to discount his mission. His mission is finding a receptivity among those who have not yet heard. They should be celebrating that, but they're busy dealing with the disappointment of those who have heard but not obeyed. You notice how he says, there, there, there's a category of people who haven't heard, and he's, he's particularly concerned with them because among them there are lots of people who are saying, this is good news. Bring this good news to us. Tell us more about this good news, those who haven't heard. And he wants them to help further that mission. He writes to the church at Rome to say, I need you to be a springboard for the mission to go beyond you, not to be the dead end of the Great Commission. But they are so concerned that the people that are nearest to their heart seem to be rejecting that they forget that God is doing something bigger. And in some ways, they judge God entirely from their own perspective, from their own vantage point. In fact, they're looking at it, and they're frustrated with God because the Jewish people they know have rejected the gospel, and they can't see the grace of God that is being displayed as the gospel is racing among the Gentiles. Now, I see a connection here for, for us. A connection here, when we want to dictate to God how and where there's a powerful advancement in his mission. Now, I think we struggle with this same sort of thing at times. You know, I hear a lot of American Christians who primarily think of what God is doing in the world based on whether it feels like American culture is moving towards God. That this is somehow, you know, and that we'll only be happy with what God might be doing. There's, God's doing incredible things all over the globe. There are places where the gospel is advancing in powerful and powerful ways, but because we're ethnocentric and often concerned with our own preferences and our own time, and we don't understand the ways of God, his ways are higher than ours. That's why we read that passage this morning, that there's something bigger going on. Uh, we basically just say, you know, God's no longer at work if we don't see him working most cl closely around us. We're tempted even to give up on being faithful ourselves if we feel like there's a lot of rejection around us, right? Well, I mean, I think, I think every Christian faces this, whether you acknowledge it or not. We live, and let's just be clear, American culture is not gospel culture. Sometimes it's a Christianized-ish social culture. But that's, it's not gospel culture. Like, I mean, true biblical teaching set in the middle of our neighborhoods and lives and workplaces isn't received well. It's not like there's a, we live in a time of rejection in our own culture in a lot of ways. And because of that, we feel really uncomfortable. There's automatically, we go, well, if lots of people around us are rejecting, uh, must be something wrong with me. Must be something wrong with us. Maybe we even frustrated God. Why won't you work more with the people that we are most concerned with? And instead of saying, God, what are you doing and how do we join your mission? Maybe God wants to untie us from our over-fascination with our own national culture so that we can be a part of a global culture of people who have trusted by faith in Christ. That he can dismantle some of our ethnocentrism so that we can be better missionaries among the globe of the people that he is sending here from all over the place. Maybe there's a work that God wants to do in us where we would see how abundant his grace is for people around the world so that we would be changed in not just 
just think he has to work in the ways that we want in the narrow places we've decided. And so we have this, this thing going on here for us to see where Paul is addressing a similar problem. We get tempted to blame God for other people's rejection of him, and then we reject the mission to those who have not yet heard. We lack energy to send the gospel around the globe if we feel like somebody near us has rejected it. If the gospel is not being received among my preferred group, I won't celebrate its reception among anyone else sometimes. Like Jonah, at the end of the book of Jonah, we could care less about the revival in Nineveh because that's not the revival we were looking for. (laughs) Now be careful, church, when you step on the ground of how God's grace is dispersed and poured out. Grace is all undeserved favor. God richly has poured out his grace on the world. (laughs) And when it advances differently than our preferences... We must not blame him for other people's rejection. Because this is what Paul's going to deal with in our second point. He, he starts to lead into it in verse 16. If you look there, he says, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. The problem isn't just as simple as getting people to hear the gospel, is it? He says, oh, there's this other problem of people who hear the gospel and reject it. Maybe even hear it abundantly and reject it. They've not all obeyed the gospel, but he re-summarizes what he's saying in verse 17. He says, faith comes from hearing. Let's get it to those who haven't heard, hearing through the word of Christ so that they can call on Christ. But I ask, is the problem, he say, I have they not heard? Is the problem that people really haven't heard? Now, here he begins to focus his question back on the people in the, in the book who have most rejected him. And particularly, he's turning the attention back on the Jewish people, and he's using biblical language. He uses Psalm 19 here to to help turn the attention on asking the question, was the Jewish rejection a problem of not hearing the gospel? But, But to do that, I want to get us inside our second point. Our second point is, as we look at this now closely, is that God's grace is seen all day long in his perseverance. So there's, there's a logic train that Paul rides on here in these verses, and I want to show it to you. In verse 18, Paul addresses whether the Jewish people have had access to God's revelation. To do that, he takes the words of Psalm 19, where it, it talks about general revelation. And, and it says, you know, even for everybody, God's words have gone out. Gone out. To all the world, he speaks through nature, he speaks through his creation in a way that leaves people responsible to seek him, even if they don't. And, and he says, you know, that's gone out, there, there's been a sort of hearing of that, but he uses the same words of that psalm, essentially to say something that all the Jewish people there already knew, that the truth about Jesus had exploded among the Jewish population, they knew about it, it wasn't anywhere you could go in the world among Jewish communities at the time, where the words of Jesus, the message of Jesus, what Jesus had done was not heard. And he's saying, so he's asking the question, is the problem that they've that Jewish people haven't heard the gospel? No, just like the voice of God in nature goes out to all the world, the happenings related to Jesus have been heard among the Jewish people worldwide. They've heard that's not the problem. So verse 19, has the Jewish rejection of the gospel been a matter of them not getting proper understanding? But I ask, 
did Israel not understand? No, in fact, they've had more understanding than anyone. He quotes here from Deuteronomy 32. And when he quotes from Deuteronomy, he says to them, basically, this is in the middle of Moses' final address to the people of Israel, okay? And, and I want you to see how he uses this historical thing to, say, to show them what's going on in their own time. And, and, and so it's in the middle of Moses' final address to the people of Israel where essentially he said, God has given you great privileges. He's, he's brought you out of Egypt. He showed himself to you on Mount Sinai. He's given you his word out of all peoples of the earth. He gathered you together to make you his family. And, and you know, he's, he's going on in that and he, and he says, I set before you today life and death. You're going to choose what path you walk down. But know this, if you walk in disobedience, if you decide to not just make mistakes, but we're talking about go into idolatry and reject the God who has been your rescue, you are doing it with understanding. You're knowledgeable of this. I've, I've put you under the knowledge of this truth, and it's a real rejection of God. It's not going to be for your lack of information. And what God is going to do at some point is he's going to show his glory among another people without understanding. And so to do that, he, he looks back. So what happens is Paul now is going, are the Jewish people people without understanding about the things of God or people with the understanding? And he says, obviously, they're with. What's happening here is God is fulfilling what he warned about in Deuteronomy. And now the Gentiles, who had no clue who God was and what he was up to, are turning to him through this promise in Jesus and, and, and seeing God's glory, his work among them. And, and, it's, and it's amazing they're experiencing reconciliation and a sense of just sort of revival among Gentile peoples. And there are people who had no clue. And so he's saying, you knew. This has been a rejection. And in verse 20, he reemphasizes that. He's using a quote from Isaiah to further the point, to explain the current happenings in Rome as God bringing a sort of judgment on Israel where he says, I, I had myself found by those who hadn't sought me, the Gentiles, and show myself to those who didn't ask. See, in one sense, he's saying, I'm not that hard to find. <laughs> I'm not that difficult to find. The Jewish problem isn't that I've been hiding myself all along and I've been far away and difficult. I've always been near. He already said that in the beginning of chapter 10. So then in verse 21, he, he's, what he's doing is he's correcting their vision of what God is doing in the midst of their rejection. And he says, in case you think that the problem here is God is hard-hearted and cold to those who reject him, how should you see, based on all of this from the Old Testament, what is true? But of Israel, he says, verse 21, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This isn't anger. This isn't anger. This is exasperation. This is lament. This is sorrow. This is the sorrow of God's heart. Saying if you want to understand this rejection. You need to see God. There with a desire for them to leave off their wickedness and come home. See, this is why Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. He wants us to see that even in the midst of 
long-term rejection, that God's heart remains steady. And we should picture him, if we want to see him rightly, even among those who have rejected him, standing with open arms all day long. (laughs) Do you hear the tone of that? The sort of plaintive tone of a heartbroken father? And so really we see this abundant grace. This is God's long-suffering and perseverance to the people of Israel contrasted with how trenchant their rejection of him has been. So Paul answers the question, what has God been doing toward those who have rejected him even as others are coming into the kingdom? This, you know, so what he's doing is he's saying, you know, if you think because all of these Gentiles are saying yes to God, that sometime, somehow God has now turned to them, you should know that he stands by with open arms. That's what his heart is. The problem isn't simply hearing. The problem with Israel wasn't understanding. The problem isn't that God has quit caring. He even still stands by when there is hard-hearted rejection. Listen, you don't really understand theology well or the teaching of the Bible well if you cannot reckon with the seriousness of human responsibility in rejecting God. What's happening here is Paul is shifting the blame that they're trying to put on God back onto their own rejection. This is rejection. And that rejection continues. In the words of the earlier part of this letter, Romans 1, it says that we tend to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But listen, you may be here today and maybe you've been in a place of rejection with God. Maybe, maybe throughout the last many years of your life, you've by and large made up your own thoughts about God and you've rejected the truth of God in His ways and you're, and you're just happened here because somebody encouraged you to or you're here because somebody wanted you to come along and, and you're hearing these things and you would say your life has been characterized by a rejection of God and His ways. Listen, don't miss this. Even now, God may be opening His grace to you. His arms are open wide. If you're wondering if he's standing with his back turned from you and his arms folded in frustration, if you're wondering if he set himself entirely against you, we are in a day of grace where through Jesus Christ, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And even now, he may be showing his abundant grace to you by allowing you to hear this and know this, that he hasn't quit and his arms remain open. Through the promise of the gospel, he stands now with open arms towards you. If you will repent and trust Jesus' work on your behalf by faith and not in your own works and ability to approve yourself. This is the good news that, he's, that we've been reading about in Romans, that, that you can be that person who has rejected him and today be saved and forgiven and reconciled to God only because of Jesus. Okay, so Paul has shown that the advance of the mission among the Gentiles was a sign of the richness of God's grace. He's shown us here that God's patience, even with the Jewish people, is a picture of God's grace that stands by even those rejecting him. And, he, and so this is how we should see God. But, um, and, but he's got one more thing that we can see here in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11. He really answers the question, is there any hope at all for the Jewish people Paul's readers are concerned about? Could there still be a move of God among them? Is he done doing that? Is there any reason for them to have hope? And the third thing we're going to see is that God's grace is seen in preserving a remnant. This is verses 1 through 6. The answer 
to the question is somewhat surprising and interesting, and I want you to see it. Verse 1 of chapter 11 turns us toward the question, specifically, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? Now, Paul just kind of answered it, right? He, he just said, you know, he stands there all day long with his arms open to them, even as they're rejecting him. But as a result, has it gone too far? Like, is, in a way, they're asking, is this judgment where there's a hardness of heart among the Jewish people permanent? Or might God still move among them in power? That's the question. And that's what he's really asking. They want to know whether they have hope for a corporate movement of renewal toward God among the Jewish people. And in a way, they're asking for all of us, can it be true that in a pe- among a people who have generally rejected God, that God would come in in some way, renew them, and call them back to them, and a strong move of the gospel would happen in their midst? It's a question I ask as I live in our own culture, and I look and I go, could it be possible? Is it possible that through the faithful preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the saints, our feelings sent among our own people, that God has not has not moved on from doing a work in our own country in our own place and all that can we be hopeful and pray it's the same question in a lot of ways but here first we must answer it in the context of which paul's speaking and paul's answer is given in two ways in the passage he number one he sees his own conversion as an example that hard-hearted rejection of christ can be overturned in a moment You see, the hardness of heart, the rejection by the Jewish people, the question is, is, can that change? Can hard-hearted sinners be saved? Or do we only hope that we can usher in a few people who seem to tend to be soft towards God? In your own life, someone who seems so set against the Lord, is there any hope that He would work in them? Well, Paul says, I'm witness number one. I mean, there's no better example of hard-hearted rejection of God than Paul himself. He gives his Jewish bona fides, right, in the, in the first couple of verses, and says, you know, I'm, I, I'm Jewish as anybody by identity, and I'm also, in a lot of ways, in the same boat that the people that we've been concerned about are in. I was hard-hearted, set against God, rejected Jesus. In fact, we know from Paul's own testimony that, that, up, that Paul leaves Jerusalem chasing down Christians who he wants to bring back and he wants to persecute. And it's in the midst of his persecution and rejection of God, his abuses against the church, his rejection of Jesus Christ, that there in a moment God saves him. God in his grace calls out to him, and Paul is changed. That's enough for him to say here in verse 2 that God has not rejected Israel whom he foreknew. All he means by that phrase in that particular verse is is that, listen, God's not done with Israel because he's not done with me. And there are others like me that God is is working in the midst of. But then he says, but let me convince you even further that God can still work among your people. How does he do that? Well, the second thing Paul does here is he says that their faith in Christ is an example that God has preserved a remnant because he's not done. Now, how does he do that? Well, Paul connects them emotionally 
with an important time in Israel's history, a time of rejection. So if we look there in verse 11, or chapter 11, we begin looking in the end of verse 2. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? He describes them this way. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But how does God reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, what's going on here? Well, think about what he's doing. He's saying, maybe, maybe, you, don't, maybe you don't know the context entirely, but, but here is Elijah in the midst of Israel. Israel's gone after all kinds of idolatry, led by their king and their queen into all sorts of wickedness. And I always like to highlight the sort of wickedness that went with Baal worship included child sacrifice. It included all sorts of sexual sin. It was, it was just a total rampant mess, something that you would probably find abhorrent if you just saw it for face value what it is. This is what's going on in their culture, and they're just all plunging into it. And it seems to Elijah there's no one left. He's the only prophet on the mountain. He, he sets up a contest, right? And uh, God shows up on behalf of Elijah and consumes the altar and the sacrifice that Elijah has set up when the prophets of Baal can't get, it, get their gods to do anything because they don't exist, right? And, but in that moment, Elijah realizes, I'm in trouble. And he takes off, and he goes, and he hides in a cave because he knows Jezebel wants to kill him. He's just cut down all of her power. And so he hides himself in a cave, and he basically says, God, I'm the only one left. Certainly your purposes are over for us. God says, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> you, you haven't really seen what I've been up to. You've not seen what I've been doing in my grace. Even in the midst of a people that have rejected me. In a way that's personal, in the heart of God. Not because of any works. He's gone, and he's rescued out of that, and set aside 7,000 others who haven't bent the knee. God's gracious action, not because of their righteousness, not because of their goodness. This is what is described in these chapters as election. <laughs> not just that God generally offers salvation to people, but this truth that all of us actually deep down know is that God also personally comes and works in people's lives. We don't understand that. We don't understand anything really about it other than it's true that, that because we've so rejected God in our sin, that God himself doesn't just stand by. <laughs> you see the progression? He doesn't just send heralds to call out people so that they can, they can come to him. He doesn't just stand by begging them to come over, but God goes and he pursues in ways that are intensely personal out of his own choices, not because of our goodness, out of his own choices. God has personally come and he's rescued people who were in their sin to be a people for himself by faith. And here he says, just like he did among Elijah, 
He's done among you. He's speaking to the Roman church. He's saying, do you wonder, can God do a work among the Jewish people? Well, he's got a remnant chosen by grace right there because the remnant for Elijah didn't just mean that God had saved a few small group of people, but that God wasn't done displaying his glory among Israel. He wasn't done with the work that he was going to do, pouring out the abundance of his grace. And the fact that he had preserved a remnant in the darkest time meant that there was yet a future time where God was going to show his glory in a big way. And he did. And so he says, even now, Paul says, you, Christian, you Jewish Christians in the Roman church are a remnant chosen by God's grace, a, a promise of his kindness so that others might hear. And we see the abundant grace of God in preserving that remnant. And that also means for us that to whatever degree you may feel like a remnant of trusting, believing Christians among a people, wherever God leaves a remnant, He still has saving work to be done. There's still hope for revival and a displaying of God's power, an advance of the gospel among the people around us in our everyday lives. There's still hope for us to be a part of extending the mission far beyond even the places that we could ever imagine. And, and he's chosen a remnant of people that could go proclaim the gospel and see his abundant grace flow into places where it'll advance quickly and we'll be amazed at times what God can do if we're willing to let God be the God of salvation. And rest in the abundant grace that has called and saved us. And know that he can do it in other people's lives. And that means the hardest sinner, the most rejecting person you know, might be the next person who gives their, faith to, gives their life to Jesus. So we can be a praying people. We can be a hoping people. And we can let God be God. And entrust the work of salvation to him. Because listen, his heart is more abundant for the peoples of this world than ours. And so that's what we believe and trust, and that's what we see displayed in the good news of Jesus over and over again. And this morning, as we come to gather around his table, as we break bread and share the cup, we, we see specifically that the broken body of Jesus is distributed that his blood is a blood that's poured out, that this sacrificial work is a, is a reminder that it's not just that we would consume it, but that it would be broken and passed to others to consume. And so as we share in the Lord's table today, we celebrate the abundant grace of God. And we remind ourselves that even as we feed on God's grace, that we have hope and we have reason to trust that God might use us to extend his grace in ways that would amaze us in the future. If that's your testimony, if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, I invite you to take the bread and the cup as we celebrate communion in a moment. If you have never responded to the grace of God, I want to encourage you, don't remain in your rejection today. The warning of this passage is that, that there is a hardness of heart. That, that this might be the last moment if you're feeling the pull, the call, the touch, the, the sense of 
guilt over your sin and the need to respond, this might be the last opportunity in which God, in a special way, comes to you. It's his turn. Come home. Don't miss this moment if God is extending his grace to you. Let today be the day you call on him and trust him for your salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for the ways your word challenges us. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to see you, to see the truth of who you are, the abundance of your gracious heart for those who need to hear the good news. Your long-suffering and patience with those who have rejected. And the way you continue to use your people in the midst of the world as a holy remnant to call others to faith in Christ. Would that remind us that you are at work in ways far beyond what we can see? that we would trust and give ourselves to that work, that we'd be confident, Lord, that you have more ahead that we can experience and trust in for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.